Hello, my name is Ian Drake. I'm with the New Books Network, and today we are joined by Andrew T. Feedy, who is the author of Homicide Justified, The Legality of Killing Slaves in the United States and the Atlantic World. He is a lawyer in private practice in northern New Jersey, and since 1986, he has been an adjunct professor of law at Montclair State University. And full disclosure, he is also a colleague of mine at Montclair State, where we're in the political science and law department together. I know him as Andy. So, Andy, welcome to New Books and Law podcast. It is a pleasure, and um, you are the author of other books in regard to American slavery, uh, entitled uh, Roadblocks to Freedom, Slavery and the Manumission in the United States South, and People Without Rights, an Interpretation of the Fundamentals of the Law of Slavery in the U.S. South. But what we're going to discuss today is your latest book. It was published in 2017 by the University of Georgia Press, and it's called Homicide Justified. And this is about uh, essentially how masters were legally able to treat their slaves and in what what were the consequences for the masters and others uh, when slaves were intentionally killed. Um, what what brought you to this element of slave treatment? In other words, why do you think this was deserving of a book-length treatment? Well, when I uh, started looking into the law of slavery um, back in law school, I uh, focused on initially violence, both fatal and non-fatal violence. And uh, the reason I looked at that is because that is one of the key elements of how uh, slave owners ke- kept control over those who were enslaved. The, uh, the topic of homicide uh, is something that I came back to with this most recent book because I wanted to do a comparative approach to look at how uh, this law uh, varied in different slaveholding uh, places and times and see if we could, through that comparison, um, have a better understanding of slavery, uh, the law of slavery, homicide, and also how law changes uh, from time to time as uh, society changes. So by taking this one issue and focusing across a broad band of time and space, um, I tried to come up with a clearer um, out- outline than you could get from looking at just one specific place and time as I did earlier. My earlier focus was on the antebellum South, and the uh, southern states' uh, laws and court decisions dealing with uh, both, as I said, fatal and non-fatal violence. I I put the two together. Um, Here I picked out the issue of homicide, and I broadened the scope in the hopes of coming up with some some new understandings of uh, similarities and differences over time and space. So early on in the book, you do um, some comparative analysis in terms of different types of regimes that had slaves, and uh, you make this distinction between what you call or you're you're borrowing for, as you note in the book from H.S. Uh, Maine's uh, concept of a status society versus a contract society. Can you explain that? Distinction? Yes, I thought that was very helpful. In terms of sorting out the different approaches. And um, what what I did is I put it in terms of a continuum from a status society being a uh, a, a, what we might call a primitive or or tribal society. Now it's maybe more correct to call it a small society. I've seen that in the recent literature, Um, in in which you have no courts, you have no written law. Instead, um, customs govern how the people. uh, uh, interrelate 
within a tribe and between tribes. And so in this regard, you have one end of the continuum. Uh, on the other end, the forest end, you would have uh, a, a more modern society where you have an elaborate court system, lawyers with specialized training, judges, legislators, uh, written or unwritten constitutions governing all of this, and a very formalized system, uh, which is different, um, but as we see, uh, addressing the same issues. Uh, what do you do when someone kills someone else? Uh, how is uh, crime deterred? How is it punished? And uh, what are the, the consequences uh, for uh, both the victims, families, and, and the victims? So that was the continuum. I, I looked at it as a continuum rather than uh, he looks at it more as a matter of progress from one form to the other. Um, I, I look at it more as a continuum that you could have uh, in this place at different times. Uh, we had uh, basically the whole range of continuum. Uh, in other places, maybe not. And that's why you can still find societies today uh, operating under what we might call the small society uh, system of unwritten laws and customs. Yeah, so Maine would see this as a progression over time, kind of a Whig view of history that you go from simplicity to complexity and more formal legal relations. Um, whereas it seems to me that, uh, especially in analyzing this in the context of slavery, uh, you can have a status society at one end and a, uh, a contract society at the other end, but both of them have slavery. Right? Yes, exactly. That's correct. And uh, so that's why I put the antebellum South more on the contract end. Um, whereas if we looked at, at the uh, Native American slavery, or if we look at slavery in Northern Europe, um, you can find it's on the status end um, before written laws uh, were relied upon. So, yes, I, I think that's correct. So uh, you compare the different areas as um, slave or uh, there are these terms of art that historians are familiar with. but And so I want to unpack them a bit, a little bit. There is the notion of societies with slaves versus slave societies, kind of a hyphenated term, slave societies. Can you explain, you, you embrace this somewhat. Can you explain the distinction there? I do, even though I know among some historians, it's a bit controversial, especially recently. Apparently some are questioning it, but it was helpful to me, again, in sorting out um, the different evidence that I found. Um, a society uh, with slaves would be a society in which the slaves are a part of the economy, a part of the social fa fabric, um, but only one part. Um, and generally speaking, the population is smaller. Um, could be 10% of the population, could be as much as 20, uh, depending on uh, the, the society. Um, and, and that would be typical of slavery, let's say, in the northern colonies in North America and um, the New England, the Middle Atlantic states, even including New York and New Jersey. Although uh, there you begin to see the transition into what is called the slave society, which would be a society where slaves make up a larger percentage of the population and are much more uh, integrated into all aspects of, of, the, of the economy and society, and ending in the uh, plantation societies where you would have a very large percentage of enslaved people working under the direction of a small number of free, uh, unenslaved people, if you will, 
And slavery is so integral to the economy um, and society that it, people can't imagine a world without it. And that's what I would contrast as being the, the southern states, especially in the years up to the Civil War, where um, people became so, um, uh, slavery became so ingrained in the society that um, the, uh, there was no way to think of beyond it. And uh, it's, it's so integral, not only to uh, uh, the economics, but also to both um, the religious and intellectual the thought process. In other words, the pro-slavery ideology uh, arose in the, in the southern states, became more and more widespread, based upon the idea of, of racism and uh, that uh, slavery was, uh, was uh, so that's why I consider that to be uh, a useful concept, uh, at least in terms of sorting out when you're doing a comparative approach as I have done here. And in addition, uh, one area you haven't really mentioned yet is, of course, the Caribbean and the British possessions there. Um, historians have treated the distinctions not only geographically but also really in terms of the prospects for slaves and this slave society versus society with slaves concept uh, even more uh, deeply in the Caribbean, right? Yes. Yeah, I devoted a whole chapter to that because I thought it would be the best way to, to handle it. Uh, and uh, other than a, with a few exceptions, those were classic examples of what I would call a society that was a slave society with, with uh, very uh, large enslaved populations, uh, 80% of the population or more uh, on these various islands, and mostly the sugar economy, where sugar was the crop that could be grown based upon all the conditions of soil and uh, you know rainfall and so forth, temperature. So in, in those colonies, yes, those are uh, probably some of the most extreme examples on Again, a continuum, if you will, from uh, a society with only a few slaves, maybe north, maybe in Canada, for example, uh, where you might have a few slaves involved, um, and then uh, exactly the, the southern states, the Caribbean, the, the plantations that many people view as the only example of, of slavery, but slavery is very diverse. And that's one of the points I was trying to make, to show how slave societies were diverse uh, and, well, the did the law diverge as well? And okay, and so that's where um, we get to the the specific topic that you want to address, which is homicide, this in, intentional and sometimes negligent uh, killing of another person, in particular slaves. So the conventional understanding of um, slavery and the prospects that one faced as a slave for how long you would live and the conditions of your life. You start in the north, in the in what we're talking about, of course. You're in your main concern, and I want to talk about some of the other types of societies that you reference in comparison. But mainly, you're concerned with American British colonies and then later states. So we start all the way north um, in uh, the furthest northern British colonies, where. It's hard being a slave no matter what, but it's certainly comparatively easier if you're in Boston than if you're in Barbados, right? I, yeah, I think that's a fair statement. Neither is, uh, is in any way desirable, and, uh, but I think that's true. And it has to do with um, quality of life in terms of uh, things that can be measured, I think, such as life expectancy, uh, but also in, in the law. And uh, 
That's why when I looked for statutes dealing with uh, slave homicides in the northern states um, and in Canada, I found that uh, there wasn't as much evidence uh, indicating that the common law uh, was, at least in theory, uh, the law that would be applied if a master or a third party killed a slave. Okay, so let's talk about that, those specific formal laws or what we call positive law, law that's on the books. Um, how does it vary from location to location? And uh, let's start at the earliest period before we start talking about the states. Let's talk about it when it's uh, only colonial possessions. Um, what's it like in colonial Boston versus uh, colonial Virginia and then uh, somewhere in the Caribbean? Well, yeah, I, I essentially broke it down into three uh, categories in the uh, in in the northern states and co- colonies, I should say, later states. Um, w- the general pattern was that the common law of homicide was applied uh, by default because uh, in English law in England, um, slavery had just more or less disappeared for, uh, for hundreds of years, and so if you were to look up in the law books for a statute or case, uh, what do we do if we have a, a case of homicide involving a slave? Well, we wouldn't find anything because there were no precedents, there were no statutes. And so at least in those jurisdictions, it would seem you would have the common law applied. Um, and as you move further south, uh, you find that there were, there were different approaches. Uh, in Virginia, for example, um, various statutes were passed in the colonial times, uh, carving out uh, certain areas of privilege where owners uh, would have the right to kill slaves. Uh, third parties would if slaves were runaways. And, and uh, w- that's what you found. Um, that was a bit different. Um, certainly what happened uh, in South Carolina was more uh, typical. That's the third pattern. Um, with uh, Barbados being the first of the British colonies in the Caribbean, where you have a complete code um, essentially decriminalizing um, slave homicide and providing only for a fine uh, for the most extreme examples of willful killings um, with no excuse, no reason. And uh, so that would be what I would call the most extreme example uh, as we look at the Atlantic system. Um, going uh, from, again, a slave uh, society uh, in, in the Caribbean and South Carolina, which pretty much copies some of the concepts from the Caribbean, to um, the northern colonies, which were um, societies with slaves. So what are the motives for the whites that live and govern in the Caribbean to allow for murder but at the same time have some legal concerns about how the law treats murder and other types of cruel behavior towards slaves? Well, that's another excellent question because if you define slaves as property, as as they did, then you would think that uh, simply a matter of uh, a civil lawsuit would be adequate for a person to sue uh, to recover damages. In other words, if you killed my slave, I could sue you and recover the market value of that slave uh, as found by a jury, for example. Um, and if, of course, if I killed my own slave, well, that would be my loss and it would be my choice. Um, the idea seems to be that uh, there were certain extremes of violence uh, on the far end 
that the society nevertheless uh, wants to uh, punish in some way. And in the early Barbados Code from 1661, it's a matter of fines. Um, now, uh, there were certain offenses that were uh, exempted from fines. In other words, owners had more power over their slaves than any other. But uh, yes, there was a possibility that, uh, that there could be fines and, and damages recovered. And, and this is significant because um, the, uh, I think the idea going back to uh, the earlier chapters in the book, as I show, is that there's a recognition that extremes of violence could lead to uh, resentment among slaves, could lead to rebellion, and uh, could lead to um, other undesirable things that in, in, a, uh, in a society like this, um, where slavery is so important, um, that the, well, cooler heads prevail, and there are certain limits beyond which an, an owner can't go uh, in order for the better preservation and continuation of, of this type of regime. So order is the term I use also. There's an orderly oppression that uh, has to be maintained. And so, in other words, this seems to be a policing, as it were, by what are seen as so, and these would be perhaps self-described as responsible slave owners and governors, um, rulers, uh, trying to rein in the more egregious examples of the white ruling class who would simply willy-nilly abuse their slaves. In other words, they, they fear the fringes of the white class who would uh, willfully abuse and murder their slaves, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And, and I found evidence of that as well when I looked at the ancient Roman laws, which I found to be helpful in this regard, because um, in ancient Rome, um, the emperors uh, did impose certain limitations on slave owners, in theory, punishing them for wanton, willful, brutal slave killings uh, for no, no reason whatsoever. And I found in some of the texts uh, a similar type of explanation explicitly stating that, you know, uh, we can't have, uh, you know, slaves are so important uh, that we can't leave them to the uh, ultimate discretion, unlimited discretion of owners. There have to be some limits. And, and the other thing they, they recognize is the harm to um, the heirs, uh, the explicit recognition of this, that, uh, you know, if you let a deranged slave owner um, you know, kill uh, his his or her slave. You're depriving the heirs, rightful heirs, uh, of that uh, property to their inheritance. So there is actually this economic uh, and I would call social order interest. You know, it's hard for us to think of people in that regard as being looked at as uh, uh, we look at them as crime victims, and, and of course, rightly so. But one also has to look at the society in which this calculation is being made. And uh, so that's why I thought the Roman material, Roman law materials were helpful, because um, I think it's a candid acknowledgement of, of what is going on, this combination of economics and social control. Um, and, uh, uh, and so to me, that was uh, helpful in explaining what was going on, for example, in the Caribbean, where um, the, the colonists there uh, were basically writing on a blank slate. They were making up the laws. They went along because, as I said before, there was no um, English or British law of slavery that they could draw upon uh, to decide what to do with these cases. 
Right. That's important. I think you, you, uh, early in the book, you make mention of course of ancient Roman law regarding slaves and the preservation of property. And you even go on into the middle ages with the Visigoths and the Spanish code, the partidas, uh, in, in the middle ages regarding, uh, prohibitions on murder of slaves. And so, these are societies obviously long before the modern period where we're concerned with individual rights and liberties and human what we think of today as humanitarian concerns. So is the lesson to be drawn from these earlier pre-modern examples that you refer to that even in a modern society of the 17th, when I say modern, I mean uh, a society that starts to recognize conceptions of individual liberty and the rights of individuals as separate from the community um, that need to be protected. Isn't this pre-modern evidence that you refer to in some way uh, revealing of the fact that regardless of modernity and notions of humanitarianism, it's essentially safety and self-preservation of the master class that's motivating uh, these uh, concerns about how we treat slaves. It's not individual liberty. I'm, I'm afraid so, yes. I, I would like to think, and many of the uh, texts that you read uh, talk about um, increased sensitivity um, based on enlightenment principles or modern principles uh, that motivated these uh, slavery laws that at least on the surface provide some level of protection, okay? But uh, I, I agree with, with the way you phrased it, uh, Ian, that when you look back, you see a continuity here, or at least uh, I did, and that's why I thought going back to the Visigoths and, uh, and, and even further to ancient Rome and even further to maybe even Native American uh, evidence of that, even further back to the, uh, the Romans' encounters with the Northern European um, barbarians, as they thought of them. Uh, and you find this continuity uh, that it seems to be uh, part of, of slavery as it existed uh, throughout history. And that, uh, that this violence w was, uh, again, uh, as much as there was a limitation, there was also a legitimizing effect or legalizing effect um, whereby there were areas of violence that were um, condoned and uh, so that you wouldn't have to worry if you were a slave owner, if through what was considered moderate correction, you just happened to kill somebody. Whereas uh, if, if it was a, a, you know, an apprentice or somebody working under you, you would be in big trouble. So uh, yes, there was this balance. And, and the balance seems to have been uh, carried on through the centuries, maybe even millennia, um, and, and that's what I think this comparative approach shows. So uh, what role here does the British government play? Um, they ostensibly have uniform policies that they want to implement throughout, uh, their emerging imperial possessions, whether it's in, uh, the far Northeast of the American literal or, uh, way down in the Caribbean. Um, how do they perceive this? That you know, I, I found them to be a, a, a very interesting. The, the, the British colonial uh, control over this, kind of like a, uh, uh, a very weak giant. In other words, uh, the, the, the colonists uh, were given a wide uh, discretion through their elected assemblies to pass local laws dealing with slavery and race relations. 
And uh, this was part of the, I guess, the British system or constitution as it related to their their empire. Uh, And they did not impose an empire-wide slave code uh, calling upon uh, all of the uh, uh, colonists to to comply. Uh, And interestingly, um, that left uh, this wide range of discretion. That's why we have laws ranging from, from those in the north to the south and the Caribbean showing a range of, of responses. Uh, nevertheless, during this period, beginning in the 1680s, um, the, um, uh, the, the uh, central government um, s- supplied all of the colonial governors, each colony would have a governor um, to administer um, the, the, the law and, uh, and, and an elected assembly uh, to, to pass local regulation. Um, and ostensibly, of course, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Ostensibly, those governors are loyal to the crown and the crown's concerns, whereas we start to get divisions between what the local assemblies want and what the crown officials yeah, want. Way, right? Yeah, way back, as far back as I said, the 1661 in, in Barbados. And so, yes, the, 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 local, uh, uh, the local colonists passed their version of what they think the law should be. Um, the governors are there to administer uh, those laws. Um, local laws are sent to the central authorities who then determine uh, whether they're uh, consistent with the laws of England. Um, what happened was it, each governor after the 1680s would receive a set of lengthy instructions. Uh, and, and one of them in the slave colonies would be try to persuade, I'll paraphrase it, try to persuade these colonists to pass the law making uh, the murder of, of slaves a capital offense. And uh, the governors would uh, then be sent across the ocean. And for o- almost 100 years, they failed to persuade uh, the colonists. So this is why I refer to this weak giant. Uh, the, the king and queen and all of their uh, forces are trying to persuade these colonists to, to make slave murder uh, a capital offense. And they can't convince them. Um, and, uh, some of the governors, I think may have tried more, uh, put more effort into it than others. Um, but they immediately, uh, met resistance from the colonists who at an early date had made up their mind that, uh, either slave killing, uh, shouldn't be a capital offense or, or it shouldn't be, uh, on the first offense. And again, I'm distinguishing colonies from Virginia South, uh, and, and in the Caribbean, uh, from the northern colonies, um, and and again, in Virginia is kind of a transition uh, because Virginia had its own way of doing things. Uh, it did, in theory, have the possibility of uh, a capital uh, punishment for uh, capital punishment for for slave killers. And in fact, there was one example uh, from 1775 of a slave owner. Prior to that, there were non-slave owners. But if you see what I mean, you have this again continuum. Uh, of, of, of change, which is a result of, of the British not imposing a, a, a code that simply said to the colonists, you will uh, punish slave murder uh, as, as, a, as any other kind of murder. They, they never did that. And uh, so that this process of, of local law was what governed. And, uh, and, and that's what we see. Uh, the laws changed over time as the local colonists responded to different concerns. So one of the questions that cropped up when I read this was, what is it that's motivating the imperial officials? In other words, why are, is there this 
seemingly empire, I know it's not a uh, powerful empire yet, but this empire-wide push to reform the treatment of slaves. What what motivates that in the in the post sixteen sixty government in England? I, I'm not sure exactly uh, what was motivating them. Um, I think that uh, the it, it may have been just in terms of homicide, at least um, a question of well, why wouldn't you follow the common law? I mean, this is what we follow. You know, we're, this is our law, and and this is you know you should this is the law you should apply. Um, the, you know, there were later, uh, reforms, certainly as people began to speak out against slavery, um, which of course led to the abolition of the slave trade and, and, and some controls in the, in the colonies. But that's much yeah, later, much, much later. That's much in, later. In the 1680s or, or as soon as this became evident, um, I, I don't know what was motivating the crown. Um, but I, but I will say that, uh, that there were uh, consistent requests made uh, and all through this period, uh, for at least that, at least making it, um, a capital crime, uh, so that you wouldn't have a situation as you did, uh, where malicious slave killers, you know, for no reason whatsoever, uh, would simply have to pay a fine as, as the ultimate punishment. Right. Because I, it was really puzzling to me why there was this push because, um, the ultimately, of course, as you note, in 1696, finally, there is, after much cajoling, repeated urging uh, in, uh, I think this is Barbados, right, in 1696, uh, where they actually start to pass. It's as if you get one one pass when you yeah, uh, kill a slave, but on the second yeah. murder. Yeah, well, Jamaica, uh, that's Jamaica, uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jamaica. Yeah, you get okay. one free so, shot and then uh, and then you get branded as a uh, the next time you would you would get what would be the punishment the first time in, in if you were killing anyone other than a slave. Yeah. And and that was the the very slow incremental approach, you know, and it is by island Barbados was the very last and I think it was 1805 to um finally capitulate to the crown and and make um slave homicide, uh, murder, uh, willful murder, a malicious, a malice forethought, uh, a capital crime. So yes, so you had this slow process where they began to succumb to pressure island by island, uh, over time. And, uh, the, uh, and again, what I try to contrast that is with the approach of the Spanish, Portuguese, and French, uh, empires where what they, uh, what the, the crown did was impose a slave code uh, on the colonists, uh, which included provisions. And, and that's the interesting question. What, why, if the English crown thought this was equally important, um, they didn't do the same thing. And, and I don't know the answer to that. That's, uh, would be a very interesting question for further study, further comparison of, you know, the empire building approaches of, of these two, uh, when I say empire, you know, colonial empires in a sense that, uh, the mother country is exerting much greater control uh, in, in, in the other, um, slaveholding empires that I, that I studied. Okay. So to go back to, to, uh, we've been talking about the motives of the imperial officials, but now the motives of people on the ground, uh, the white slave owners, they are concerned with 
their own physical safety. So on the one hand, it seems as if there's a dilemma where they don't know just how much leeway they can allow their white brethren. In other words, the on the one hand, if they let people become sadistically cruel, um, albeit, of course, within the context of slavery itself, uh, which is a cruel system, but nevertheless, if they allow people to willy-nilly without penalty, without any stricture, kill their slaves, the fear is what exactly will result? Well, the fear is, I suppose, twofold. One is that, again, that, that causes an economic harm uh, to, the, to the heirs. I, I take that from the Roman uh, texts who, who thought of that. But I think more important, it was a concern that it would lead to um, uh, disquiet among the slaves. It would lead to rebellion. Uh, it, it could uh, it could lead to to um, uh, to this in the community. That's when a slave owner is involved, okay, um, and uh, that therefore that the the, the slave owning um, legislatures in this case, uh, at least in some regard, were policing um, the people uh, who were electing them, and uh, and and that was they that was I consider to be part of their interest, uh, their calculation of interest, whether it's economic, social. And so forth, but at the same time, they wanted to have a broader scope of liability for uh, others who might kill their slaves. For example, um, third parties who might wantonly kill a slave for no reason. Obviously, uh, if that person is is not able to pay damages, or even if the person can, uh, the owner might want uh, retribution through the law to punish that person. And later, when you have overseers. Um, used as you do on the plantations, that was another area where there was uh, constant conflict between uh, overseers uh, who uh, are are charged with uh, controlling slaves and slave owners who want to see their slaves uh, managed properly and not killed off, uh, where they would suffer a a capital loss in terms of the loss of their most valuable property. So uh, that's why you also see, um, instead of uh, uniform rules, uh, that we normally think of that everybody's governed by the same law, um, you, you see that there were different standards of liability imposed uh, as part of these reforms over time uh, to account for the different interests uh, that occur in a slave society like uh, a plantation society. So um, one of the interesting uh, geographic locations is South Carolina, where you've got this, um, it seems to be this overlapping of, on the one hand, a a society with slaves versus a slave society, depending on where you are within the South. Um, And so you've got the Caribbean is essentially a straight out slave society concept where people just cannot imagine what life would be like without many slaves. And they have these huge numbers of slaves, a huge percentage of the population and a growing percentage over the decades. Whereas in South Carolina, if you're in the upland, meaning uh, further inland uh, versus the lowland along the coast, you really do have, in some ways, two different functioning uh, economies in regard to slavery, right? Yeah. Yes, you did. Yeah, there was. And, and that was somewhat reflected in, uh, in the chapter I have on, on South Carolina. Um, South Carolina was the last of the states... Uh, at that point, slash colonies, states, to finally uh, put um, uh, slave murder, uh, at least uh, potentially as a capital crime, 
And uh, that was um, in 1821, even after Barbados. So uh, because of that, there was a long history of lobbying um, and uh, a legislative history, if you will, that I have in that chapter um, in which we have a pretty good record of of the arguments that were being made. And it does seem that some of the arguments were coming from more interior portions, um, that uh, the law needs to be reformed. Uh, this is an outrage, and we need to join now with everyone else, including the other British colonies, the, the British colonies, and make slave murder uh, a capital offense. And uh, the evidence of that were, came, came from newspapers, from uh, grand jury presentments, uh, and other documents. Uh, and uh, after each of these terrible murders, there would seem to be a newspaper article or something calling for this, and, and of course, the reforms would fail. And so the uh, so South Carolina provides an interesting example. Maybe it's because of that um, split in the um, in the way the society is set up and governed. Uh, but ultimately, the slave owners had had the control and were able to fend off these reform efforts um, again for about well uh, well until 1821, and finally they capitulated. So, so these reform efforts, um, and when we talk about reform, what we're talking about is essentially some type of it's it's essentially as you described earlier there is no quote unquote slave law until the locals make it themselves because there's no prepared on the shelf british imperial slave law it's a, unlike the french and the uh, spanish it's really a law that's going to be made locally and hence the standards are going to vary from place to place yeah that's exactly right that's what's that's what's uh that's what's behind everything I'm saying is this right. this this lack of central control and this local control, which uh, which can reflect the different calculations of the interests involved in different places and times. So yes, and so these reform efforts, though, they're being pushed by the central government uh, ever since the restoration government from 1660s onward, and really it starts to, I guess. Uh, speed up and become more repetitive and uh, a more uniform push by the 1680s and 90s. But eventually there are going to be these reform efforts that are even taken on by the local uh, governors. Uh, They're imperial, allegiant to the empire, but at the same time, they do apparently push these things. Um, And so eventually there are reforms what seems to be the catalyst for it, other than the governor wanting it? Is it a fear of rebellion that seems to make these people in the legisl- local legislatures who are elected slave owners themselves? I- is it fear of mistreatment starting to be reflected in attitudes of the slaves? Uh, what, what seems to be the motive then for people who are willing to start to adopt reform? Yeah, I think it's a mixture of motives. I, I do think that those uh, economic, social control issues are predominant. I think that that's part of it. Uh, it may also be that some people were motivated by, and I'll put it in quotes, humanitarian concerns, that uh, they felt that slavery, um, if it was not wrong, it should nevertheless be um, a subject of regulation by the government, uh, just like uh, any other type of regulation, and but appropriate regulation that would recognize uh, the superior rights of slave owners uh, while at the same time 
um, recognizing um, uh, their economic interests. I also think that with the stratification of society, I think this is a, probably maybe the most important point, that um, we begin with the concept of the idea that it's whites, slave owners versus uh, blacks who are slaves. And uh, what happens over time as plantation societies or even uh, non-plantation but complex societies develop, uh, you have stratification within the white class. And you have uh, the elite slave owners, you have uh, middling and small slave owners, non-slave owners, uh, what people call poor white trash. And, uh, you know, within that white structure, uh, the slave owners felt, well, we have to control these people. We need laws that are going to punish and deter uh, these people from harming our slaves. And and often that was, I think, what was motivating uh, these reforms. And so on the one hand, they look humanitarian and maybe some were motivated by that. On the other hand, I think some were concerned about controlling um, the white underclass and also the, the overseers, candidly, who, who were now becoming more and more essential, if you will, as uh, slave society was developing in these, in these regions. So um, the, then the dilemma becomes, well, okay, uh, let's, let's make it a capital crime, but then what about us being the slave owners? What about us? Well, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll only punish the very extremes uh, we'll allow masters explicitly in some places, not explicitly in others, um, a free pass if they kill a slave as, as a result of moderate correction, uh, if the slave is rebellious, and or if the slave is an outlaw as defined. That was the North Carolina approach. And by carving out areas uh, where, where there was impunity for slave killing, for slave owners, um, they were able to set up a uh, maybe three-tier system or, uh, where slave owners faced the least liability, um, overseers and uh, faced uh, middle level, and then third parties who have no relation would be the most susceptible to punishment. Um, and this, was, this you can view as a protection of property, as a protection of order, and uh, that uh, therefore when the slave owner gets to that extreme level, um, where there's no reason whatsoever for what he has done or she has done. Um, only in that case would, would there be the potential for punishment. And, and, uh, and so when you look at that in that regard, um, I think it's a mixture of motives. So um, t- changing to a somewhat different subject now, um, it seems to me that one of the difficulties uh, that all legal historians face is you've got – positive law, meaning law that's been enacted, it's on the books, um, and sometimes you even have court decisions that reflect the enforcement of it. But at the same time, it's hard to know when and how often that positive law is actually implemented, how often it's actually enforced. So in this particular context with slave homicide, what were some of the problems and uh, that you encountered with evidence of enforcement? Yeah, that that's a very big problem, and 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 I'm very sensitive to that. Um, just because there's a law on the books uh, doesn't mean it, uh, in practice uh, that law is enforced or or that it's even uh, you know effective. And I always use the example of driving on the turnpike. If I try to drive the speed limit on the turnpike, I'm 
practically driven off the road. So in 100 years from now, when people will look at the speed limit laws, they will assume everybody drove 65 miles an hour when they had cars back in the day. And of course, we know that's not true. So why should, when we look at slavery law 100 years ago, 200 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, we have to keep the same concern in mind. Uh, do these laws that we have evidence uh, of um, reflect the actual practice? The best we can do is just uh, look at, at the evidence we have. And in the, um, in the antebellum years, there are a number of reported cases in the appellate courts uh, that, that show cases were tried, people were convicted, uh, and, and there also uh, is evidence uh, from newspaper articles and other sources of, of trials to at least get some sense of how, who was prosecuted, uh, were those prosecutions successful, and uh, to, to try to come to, to some at least general understanding. Um, but yeah, crime statistics, if you will, um, are very hard to, to, to really quantify during this period to really know w- whether these laws on the books were meaningful or not. And, and that's one of the arguments that's been made over the years that, oh, well, you know, uh, these slave owners, they were people better than their laws. You know, they, they put these laws on the books. They may seem harsh. They may seem cruel. But, you know, they, they treated their slaves well and and, and we all knew that, and those laws are there just as a basically a stopgap, you know, and for extreme cases. Um, but 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 no no owner would would will would willingly kill his or her own slave, uh, you know, and so forth. Um, so you know that's that's the one argument on the one side, um, and so I, I try to look at the actual examples that we have to see well well who was pros- prosecuted who who was executed, um, and and how many. Uh, of these cases resulted in uh, either um, uh, you know the slave owner getting a, a a small penalty or or no penalty, and so I think what I found is that you have to look at the case law, and uh, you have to look at the uh, at these other sources to, to get a picture, and uh, so it, at least there's some evidence uh, during this period of prosecutions, and that's what I tried to put in the later chapters of the book to shed some light on uh, on how the statutes were actually enforced. And so uh, when we do, in fact, get prosecutions of owners who kill slaves and the distinction you made earlier, third parties, non-owners, whether they are overseers or complete strangers to uh, the slave owner, um, what, what are the results typically? Well, typically... Um, as, as I had kind of alluded to before, um, the third parties face the, the highest uh, likelihood of prosecution and successful prosecution. And uh, I use the example of North Carolina uh, there as, as, as a better example because uh, the, the case law there is, uh, it starts in the 1790s uh, when we have reported cases. And, and the first cases deal with... Uh, Third parties and overseers, as as, I, as you might suspect, um, killing slaves. The first North Carolina uh, person who was killed, uh, executed for killing a slave, was a was a uh, third party, um, and and that caused quite an uproar um, because uh, even though the law had been passed uh, making um, uh, slave killing a capital crime, um, again with the carve out for slave owners. Um, there was great controversy about whether that law should should ever be enforced, 
And in fact, uh, it eventually was. I tell the whole story there as 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 these cases developed. Um, and uh, so, yes, that would be the first step that that would show um, that uh, there would be the widest liability there. You then get to overseers, um, and there are cases involving overseers, and in, in in all of the states, I believe, and. And then finally, the most difficult question is, is the slave owner or slave owner's family member, close family members, um, whether they should be prosecuted, if at all. And, uh, and just what, uh, what is the uh, outer limit uh, of what we would call moderate or necessary correction, or what they call moderate or necessary correction. Um, and so, so that's kind of the spectrum uh, of liability. And I think that uh, the sources in the book um, show that. And so, uh, in addition to the difficulty of prosecution, whether to prosecute or not, um, there are also some real evidentiary limits on any would be prosecution in terms of, uh, the witnesses, because most of the time, um, there, a lot of the witnesses are probably going to be other slaves, but there's some real, uh, severe limitations on how useful they can be. Right. Oh yes, uh, that's one of the things that uh, makes all of this so um, so difficult for prosecutors, if you will. I think, um, in terms of actually getting convictions. So um, this is one of the main principles of evidence law that enslaved people could not testify. Uh, even free blacks, in many instances, were were prohibited from testifying against whites. So you would have to have uh, white people who were witnesses who had seen something that they were willing to complain about because they felt it so crossed the line uh, and uh, that uh, even even getting the case prosecuted would be then a chore. Uh, and then, of course, proving the case in court uh, would be uh, yet another example. And that's why I started the first chapter out with taking uh, an actual case and looking at it, uh, a trial from start to finish, to try to illustrate for the readers how slavery law worked um, you know, under the theory, show them, don't, don't tell them, um, and to show how the, uh, the end result, I won't give it away, so someone might want to read the book. Uh, I tried to turn it into a, a story to try to illustrate how um, some of the conceptions we have of, of law and how the process works, um, how there were deviations there. And so certainly uh, evidential and as I say, the standards, uh, the standards that were applied, because, um, again, just to switch to North Carolina, um, those cases very explicitly through uh, common law development uh, modified the standards of mitigation and extenuation, which for lay readers might not understand how important that is. But for lawyers, that's extremely important, meaning when does a crime go from uh, justified homicide to manslaughter? where you have a lesser penalty to murder, where you have the ultimate penalty. And uh, what the judges did, uh, more or less on their own, is decided, well, we're going to modify the, the standards we normally apply. We're going to, because it's slavery, because it's race, uh, we think we can do this. And, and they did, uh, to therefore make it more likely that uh, white defendants would uh, either be uh, free of punishment or would get a lesser punishment. Um, again, explicitly dealing with race and class, um, where uh, this was not this was law they were making up. 
this was not something that was uh, a precedent from England. Um, so, uh, yeah, these are, these are, I think, very interesting developments that show how the law can be very pliable, flexible, both statute and common law, um, when the elites in a society uh, uh, are able to, uh, you know, have their way, as they did in colonial and, and then later the antebellum years. So here's a curveball question. Tell me something that really surprised you in researching and writing this book. Well, you know, I was surprised by the uh, difference between uh, the colonial regimes, um, comparing England, for example, uh, and and the other empires, France and so forth, uh, with uh, slave codes being imposed. Um, that was something that I was just not aware of. And uh, so that was new to me because I had focused on the... Uh, on the British colonies uh, here in North America, primarily. Um, and the other thing, as I would say, is uh, this, this, what I see as a continuity um, going back to um, you know, ancient Rome and, and maybe even before of this idea, uh, which uh, is that uh, violence is so inherent a part of slavery that uh, we have to have these uh, carve-out areas where, where slave owners are, are free to um, abuse and even kill their slaves in cases where um, even in other forms of inequality, husband and wife, um, indentured servants and masters, uh, where we don't excuse it. So, um, yes, difference and continuity, I guess, would be those the two things that surprised me. Well, the book is Homicide Justified, The Legality of Killing Slaves in the United States and the Atlantic World. And we've been joined today by its author, Andrew T. Feedy. Andy, thank you so much for joining me on New Books and Law podcast. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. And uh, uh, thank you again for the opportunity. 